Father God, we pray this morning that the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, if you recall, we heard of Christ Jesus as the true prophet. We heard from Deuteronomy 18 where Moses recounted what happened at Mount Sinai and the Lord himself spoke to God's people. And can you remember what happened? There was thunder, there was lightning and the people were terrified. They trembled in fear. And they said to Moses, don't let us hear again the voice of the Lord our God or to see this great fire of his presence lest we die. It was a terrible, terrifying fear they had. But it was also a right and reverent fear, wasn't it? God himself said they are right in what they have spoken. Back in Exodus, he said to them, Don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. God says, Don't be afraid, but be afraid. That's what he said. Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you. Be afraid in reverence and awe in the face of his holiness so that we won't get complacent about sin and approaching God. They were right to fear the Lord. And God in his covenant love and kindness gives them a prophet, Moses, many others after him, to speak to them on his behalf. And as we heard last week, he also promised to raise up another prophet after Moses, And God will put all his words in his mouth. And that prophet, the final true prophet, is Jesus. So that was last week. But if we back up a little to what God said again there, when he said they are right in what they have spoken, they were right to be afraid of having this direct interaction with the Lord God Almighty, with the Holy God. They were right to fear God speaking directly to them. And it wasn't just the thunder and the flashes of lightning that, you know, sometimes if there's a really big storm, you start to get a little bit worried yourself. No, it was the holy presence of God in their midst. The direct address of God to his people. And even that was somewhat um, constrained or at least limited in the sense that they they had days of preparation. God said, I'm not going to come and speak to you until you've had three days to consecrate yourselves. Make yourselves clean and pure with the way that I've given you. Set limits around the mountain. You can only come so near. Don't come up. Even the priests couldn't get up on the mountain. Only Moses and Aaron. And even they had to go go about it a certain way. But even with all those things in place, direct address, a direct interaction with God was something to be fearful of. They couldn't just dawdle into God's presence and be casual about it. Even Moses, remember, had to hide his face and take off his sandals at the burning bush. God had to put him in the cleft of the rock. He could not see the face of God and live. He could only see his backside because no man could ever see the face of God and live. I wonder if you'd agree with me that it's a fair assessment and critique to say not only the world, if they haven't denied God, but even in the church, that many of us have domesticated God. We've become all too familiar with him, too complacent and casual 
about how we approach him. Yes, he is our father. We've just, we have a friend in Christ who's given us full and free access to the father. And we've sung, we cry, Father, Abba, Father. We had it read to us from Ephesians 2. We have access to the Father, but we only ever have that access through the Son, in Christ, through Him. Yes, we're told and we're encouraged, aren't we, to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence and there we'll find mercy and grace in our time of need. But it is still a throne. You ever think about that? It is still a throne upon whom sits who sits upon a throne kids a king we're going to hear more about jesus as the king next week we've had prophet last week priest this week jesus as the conquering king next week but you don't approach royalty you don't approach a throne without bowing down in some way or another we can read in revelation even the 24 elders have all seated on their own thrones in revelation Even they bow down and place their crowns before the throne of God, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. And yes, I know the illustration, which tells of the great king and a child who runs up and just goes and gives the king a big hug, and you think, wow, everyone's thinking, you can't do that. And then you learn that the child is actually the king's son, so he is more than able to do that. And we are his children, aren't we? And he's given us the full rights of sons, every spiritual blessing. But even all of that is only ever in Jesus Christ. Only by his blood can we enter his presence that way. A great high priest who's served us, gone before the Holy One so that we could have that access. A great high priest who actually delights to call us his brothers and sisters, and says to the Father in his holiness, Behold, I and the children God has given me. It's only with that introduction that we have any audience with the Holy Father. That wonderful verse in Hebrews 4, we had it read to us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. That verse 16 only comes after verses 14 and 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Because of that, then let's draw near with confidence. Because of him, let us hold fast our confession. A high priest who has actually been made like us in every respect, but without sin, and who has gone before us. I can remember when I was a teacher and even in my time at Bible college, uh, students and one student in particular at Bible college who in their prayers um, would say, rather than Heavenly Father or Dear God, would say, Dear Dad, addressing God as Dad. And I get what they're saying and what they're doing, trying to just um, express that nearness and dearness they have with God as Father. But I wonder if it was just a little bit too casual somehow. Yes, he's our gracious heavenly father who delights to have us and he's adopted us and delights to have us as as his children. But he's still the heavenly and holy father. Like the Israelites at Mount Sinai there with Moses, we dare not approach the mountain or his throne, even the throne of grace, without some sense, a deep sense of reverence and awe in the face of his holiness. 
For, says the writer of Hebrews, he is, our God is, a consuming fire. Now, some of you might be saying, hang on, Ray, this all sounds, well, here we are encouraging one another to worship and draw near to God, and you're saying, hang on, got to step. I'm not saying step back, not at all. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, but Ray, that was the Old Testament. We're living in the New Covenant. Hasn't Jesus come and paved the way for us and given us access? And he has. But as I said, it's only ever through him. It's because of him that we can approach the throne of grace. And we're encouraged to. The Father delights when we do. And we don't have to have an Old Testament high priest. This place would be pretty messy if we did. It's no longer with a sacrifice in our hands that we have to come to worship and come to church. It's no longer by the shedding of blood, not in our worship service anyway, that we approach the throne of God. But it is still only ever through and in Jesus Christ and because of his sacrifice through his blood shed that we can come before God. God is a, uh, Christ is our great high priest. He's the mediator, the one between us and God. Without him and his finished work as our great high priest, the finished work of his sacrifice on the cross, and his unfinished work, his ongoing work, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Now I'm aware for most of us, but especially as we've got the young ones in today, most of us don't really hear much or see much about priests in our lives, do we? Especially in Baptist circles. We might hear a bit about the priesthood of all believers, but even that we don't necessarily talk about much and many of us don't understand. But for the sake of those who maybe you've never seen a priest or understand much about priesthood, let me explain a little bit. I'm going to start with the Old Testament then start with a few modern day things as well. But at the heart of the worship of God's people in the Old Testament was the priesthood. Not men in what my daughters would call the flippy floppy hats that you might see on a priest or a bishop today in some denominations, but priests who had to, actually had to know a thing or two about butchery because they were the ones who would actually sacrifice the animals that people would come before God with. They'd come to the tabernacle or the temple with. They had to shed blood. They had to sprinkle blood for the forgiveness of sins, among other things. No member of the public could approach God directly. No one could. And even the priests, it was only so far they could go. Even in the tabernacle or the temple, there was one place, the Holy of Holies, who only one person could go, and that only once a year on a special day called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And you can read Leviticus 16 if you want, go through all the details, but once a year on that day, the high priest, Aaron, or later a high priest in the order of Aaron, could enter the most holy place. But even then, he could only enter into that place after he'd sacrificed a bull and had a couple of goats or lambs with him. There's a lot of blood. He had to take a bull and a ram... A sin offering and a burnt offering he had to wear special linen clothes after he'd bathed and he had to take from the congregation two young goats, two male goats. And the bull would be presented to be slaughtered as a sin offering to make atonement for the priest himself and for his household and the place would be sprinkled with blood. And then he'd take one of the goats and that too would be killed as a sin offering for all the people. And that blood would be sprinkled in the holy place upon the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions. And he'd do more, sprinkling of the blood and the blood of the bull and of the goat. And then the one remaining goat, he'd lay both hands upon it 
confess over it all the sins of the people of Israel and that goat would then be sent away by someone prepared to do this task into the wilderness called the scapegoat so that their sins would be removed far away, as far as east is from the west. And then the priest is to take off his special linen clothes and wash himself again, take all the remains of the bull and the goat that were there and they were taken outside the camp and they were burnt. You couldn't go through that process casually, couldn't you? Could you? You would have to go away from that day knowing this was a holy occasion. No denying it. In my younger years, in the Anglican church that I grew up in, something similar actually took place. No, we didn't have goats and bulls and shedding of blood, not in that way. But there was a similar restriction. There were similar limits set where people could come only so far. And only the priest or minister would have special access to some places. Now, some would consider those aspects of Anglicanism and Lutheranism and other denominations as hangovers of the Old Covenant, or at least from the medieval Roman Catholic Church. That's not always the case, though. A bit more about that in a moment. When we went to receive communion at church when I was growing up, we would go forward, but we could only come so far. We would head towards the altar at the front of the church, but there was a rail there before the altar and you couldn't go past the rail. You would kneel down and you receive the elements there before, and the minister, the priest, was behind that. He'd been at the altar, what we call the table. We don't call it an altar for good reason. No sacrifice being made anymore, is there? But only the priest and his servants, the altar boys, could be in that sacred space. It's another example of modern-day priesthood. When I taught at a Lutheran school, I was given the very extremely rare, unique privilege of actually um, playing the role of acting pastor for a term. Um, not being a Lutheran, that was a pretty unique and special occasion. Um, some, some Lutherans would have probably scoffed at the idea, but the principal together with the pastor thought because I knew the school, I knew the students and the staff, and they knew me, there was an appropriateness about that. Uh, but one thing I remember quite clearly, uh, the, the pastor who was about to go on long service leave saying to me, because I would be leading devotions for staff and students, he'd say, when you give the benediction at the end of those devotions, you are not allowed to say, the Lord bless you. You have to say, the Lord bless us. As in, include myself with the people. He could say, the Lord bless you, but I couldn't because I wasn't in any special ordained ministry, didn't have any special office. I wasn't in the position of the Lutheran minister to be able to say, the Lord bless you, with that authority. That was fine by me, because I didn't see myself as set apart from the rest of them in any way. But that's how the Lutheran system was working at the time. Now, some places, some of those denominations are becoming more free, less so than others, more so than others. Um, At their best... They see the priests, those ministers, as representatives of signs pointing to Christ as a great high priest. There is something good about what happens there in those traditions because they uphold the holiness of God in a way that some of us nonconformist Protestants don't at times or can be in danger of not doing. And, dare I say, should be said, that even here and elsewhere, we could be in the danger of actually putting the preaching pastor in that same mediatorial role, couldn't we? 
as in putting the person in the pulpit, because we don't have the altar front and centre, we have the pulpit for good reason. But you don't come to God through me. You come to God through Jesus Christ. You hear his word, I hope, not mine. So there is something good and right about that representation of God being holy and representing Christ as our high priest. But sadly, often that's not recognised and even the way it's done can limit our understanding of Christ as our high priest and puts another person in that place. Maybe if the writer of Hebrews, I said out the back to the fellas to, to share anything or everything about Christ's high priesthood, you really need to read all the chapters of Hebrews. So go home and read it after lunch. Um, maybe if the writer of Hebrews actually put his name somewhere in the letter, it would have been really helpful because the fact that Luke, uh, Hebrews doesn't have an author assigned to it uh, meant that its authority and inclusion in the scriptures was a little bit questionable in the early centuries. Right up to Luther's day, there was still some questions about it. Um, and maybe if it wasn't, because it makes very clear that Christ is our great high priest and the old order of priesthood has been done away with. But having said that, one letter that was plainly in the scriptures early on, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Who is it? It's the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. One mediator between us and God, Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. And yes, it's the writer of it's the letter of Hebrews which goes into it's really the, the thesis in the New Testament um, about Christ and his high priestly ministry. Hebrews declares plainly and loudly to us that Jesus Christ is supreme and above all, he's greater in every way. He's God's son, better than the angels, greater than the prophets, greater than Moses. He promises a better rest. He establishes a better covenant. He's in a priesthood that's not the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. Don't have time to go into all of that one. I need to say that it was in place before Aaron, and it's a priesthood that goes on forever. And as such, he's our great high priest. He's offered a better sacrifice. He offers better prayers. He's gone into the heavenly holy place, not just one made with hands. And... All the Old Testament high priests had to offer their sacrifices every day and every year and every day and every year and repeatedly. But Jesus Christ has offered his sacrifice. And he's not just the high priest there, but he's actually the Lamb of God who was slain, isn't he? He is the sacrifice. And he's done that once for all. And he sat down at God's right hand, the writer of Hebrew tells us, telling us that his ministry, that that sacrifice, it's a finished work. And there is no longer any other sacrifice to be made. So his sacrificial work as our great high priest has been finished. It's done. It's complete. And yet he goes on, continues as our great high priest now at God's right hand, doing what? Interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Not having to speak to the Father and say, Father, come on, I've got to twist your arm, you know, as if God needs persuading to accept us and to forgive us. That's not how it is. Some people thought that. That's not the role of Jesus as mediator. Just as the work on the cross is a demonstration of God's love for us, so too is Christ's ongoing work as high priest is actually God's provision to us that he would hear our prayers through Jesus. Why do we say in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers? Because it goes through. 
because he is interceding for us. He is God's, he is the Father's provision to us in his love, mediating for us, advocating for us, interceding for us. We've already sung it and we're going to sing it in another hymn in a little while. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Not mine, not my genuine determined heart or confess. No, I have a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. This morning, the message, I guess, that we dare not approach the throne of God without a mediator, without Christ, is not meant to cause us to draw back and say, oh, hell, maybe I've been too casual, too complacent. If that's been the case, then yes, some self-examination, church examination might be needed. But my hope this morning is actually we rejoice in the fact that we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ so that we can approach the throne of grace and so that God on that throne actually delights and loves for us. He's determined for us to actually draw near to him because he's made the way for us to do that through his son. Did you hear it in Ephesians? Because there's not too many Jews here, I don't think, by birth amongst us. So we are Gentiles by birth. And in Ephesians, as we read, we were without hope, without God. We couldn't draw near at all. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament days, again, there were different restrictions. The, the Gentiles, you ever gone to um, an event at a big stadium or a sporting event or a musical? And, you know, you get the reserve A seats, A reserve, they're, they're pretty special. Then you get the B reserve, not so expensive, but you still get the C mark. And then the C reserve, and then you're up in the sort of the back blocks. You sort of need the binoculars to see what's going on. The Gentiles are a bit like that. Probably couldn't even see what the priest was doing most of the time. And we're told, no, 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 Jew and Gentile together. You can actually now come into the very presence of God. That's the joy, that's the access we have, but only through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Only because of his, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. Children, why is it, as Kathy told us, that we're to love God and love one another? Only because he's first loved us. That's where the love comes from. How do we draw near to God? Because he's drawn near to us in his own son and given his blood for us. Think back to what I shared about the Old Testament priest on that day of atonement. Here's Jesus. He's the the great high priest who's come, the writer of Hebrews tells us, not into a tabernacle or tent made with hands, but into the heavenly holy place, the very presence of God, not just the shadow of the substance, but the actual substance into God's holy presence. Christ has entered and he has offered not a sacrifice of blood of goats or bulls, but his own blood. He is both the high priest making the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice. Now we can go another step. He's actually both goats, isn't he? He's the goat, the lamb who was slain. His blood shed. And he's the one upon whom all the sins of the world have been put upon and cast into the wilderness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that our sin would be as far removed from us as east is from the west. And when he'd done that, 
cried out, it is finished. And when he's raised and ascended into heaven, where does he go? He sits at the Father's right hand. As I said, his work, sacrificial work finished, and now he continues as our great high priest in that priesthood forever, always living to make intercession for us. don't know if you've ever picked up on that, what we... Uh, Hebrews 7, didn't have that one read for us, didn't we? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now our salvation is secure based on his finished work on the cross, isn't it? But our assurance, our confidence of that salvation and of our perseverance to the end, we can find that assurance in the very fact that he always lives to make intercession for us. Because of that, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So what does all that mean for us today, apart from the fact that I don't wear a dog collar, as some places call it, and we don't have sacrifices happening here at church? Well, Wayne mentioned one thing that I want to share with us, just briefly. Hebrews 9, How much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works so that we might serve the living God? How much does your conscience play a part in your everyday life? Like just about every moment? Every action, every thought, every deed? Weighed up, analysed, even if not at the moment, afterwards, criticised, affirmed, excused by our conscience or condemned by it. And the evil one has a field day with it as well. Unless our conscience is informed with the truth of Christ and the gospel, it's going to be the place where he attacks most fiercely. How much of our mental health system, those who struggle with deep lasting effects of sin and guilt and shame in their lives, could be relieved from that pressure and that pain if we knew the truth of these verses? And the reality of it, not just a theoretical truth, but that we would have a conscience cleansed from dead works by the blood of Christ. Now, I'm not saying every mental health situation is a matter of knowing the gospel or not, but I am saying the gospel and the blood of Christ speaks to any and every situation and to any and every one of us. Do you know that wonderful relief and joy of a cleansed conscience? No condemnation in Christ Jesus? None at all? Washed, pure, spotless, blameless, so that we might serve the living God and love God and love our neighbours as ourselves? Christ's great high priest, it's got lots to say about our normal everyday lives, hasn't it? (laughs) And what a hope we have living today with a cleansed conscience and knowing that there will be a day when we no longer carry any of that grief of sin and shame and a guilty conscience. And when all our pain and all our anxiety and all the abuse that's happened to us and it's taking place in the world and all the injustice, God will say it's done. And he himself, and I just shared with the youth group a week or two ago just what a beautiful picture this is, that God himself will wipe every tear from our eye. 
And as he does that, if you read in the context of Revelation, there's a lamb who was slain in the midst of the congregation. Our great high priest. As you came here this morning, gathering for worship, who is it that's leading us? Wayne led the service, but I've heard Wayne speak and teach, especially to our musicians and service leaders a few years ago. Christ is our great worship leader. He's the one who's called you to worship. He's the one who leads us. He even leads us in our praise in the congregation. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Keep on reading. It's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what does he say at the end of it? Which I thought I had written down, but I didn't. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Ever thought of that? While we're singing praises to God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, Jesus himself is singing praise to the Father with us and calling us to do the same. He is singing God's praise in the midst of the congregation. And what of our prayer time? What of your prayers and mine? That we pray in his name? That he is ever living to intercede for us and the Spirit too, as we read in Romans 8, interceding for us? It's only ever in and through him that we have an audience with God. And what about when we do muck up? Well, let's just call it for what it is, when we do sin against the holy God. How could we ever come into his presence? Because we do, don't we? What is it John says? My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. (laughs) It's exactly what God said to the people with Moses, didn't he? That you would fear me, that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, not, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's both Christ's finished work, his atoning sacrifice, and his ongoing intercession, his advocacy for us at the Father's right hand taking place. Again, not to twist the Father's arm, but as the mediator between us and the Father. And finally, as we heard last week, Christ is the true prophet. It's his word which brings us to faith, isn't it? And he, not any pastor or priest, it's Christ who's the true mediator between us and God. He's serving God and ministering to us and for us. How did he do it? How does he serve? He laid his life down for us. Shed his blood so that we could approach the mercy seat, the very throne of grace. And he goes on interceding for us at the Father's right hand. We could not worship as we do. We could not pray as we do. We could not live as we do if Jesus is not our great high priest. But because he is, we can worship, we can pray, and we can live by faith. And we can rejoice in it. And we don't have to come bringing lambs or pigeons to church for the pastor to cut up. Don't worry, Volley, we're not going to start with dogs. (laughs) But we do still need blood shed for us. And it has been in Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no... Forgiveness has to be the shedding of blood. And Christ has done that in his own body on the tree. 
And therefore we don't need anyone else to play the part of our great high priest, what Christ has done for us. So that because of him, because of that, not just on a Sunday morning, but any and every day with confidence now, we can draw near to the throne of grace. With confidence we can go to him and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And we do that, we can do that since, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus himself, the Son of God. So let us hold fast our confession, the writer of Hebrews says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen.